Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Welcome to the WPT Industrial REITs First Quarter 2021 Conference Call. All participants will be in a listen-only mode. Should you need assistance, please signal a conference specialist by pressing star, then zero. After today's presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To ask a question, you may press star, then one on a touchtone phone. To withdraw your question, please press star, then two. Please note, this event is being recorded. Before we begin, let me remind everyone that during this conference call, management may make statements containing forward-looking information. This forward-looking information is based on a number of assumptions and is subject to a number of known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from those disclosed or implied. We direct you to the company's earning release, MD&A, and other security filings for additional information about these assumptions, risks, and uncertainties. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Scott Fredrickson, Chief Executive Officer. Please go ahead. Thank you, Betsy. Good morning and thank you for joining us. With me today are Matt Semino, the REIT COO, and Judd Gillitz, the REIT CFO. Before we dive into our detailed results, I want to provide a few high-level comments on the quarter and the U.S. industrial market more generally. WPT produced solid quarterly results driven by robust operating activity, meaningful progress in our capital recycling initiative, and a strengthened balance sheet. The formation of our new stabilized joint venture demonstrates the REIT's ability to attract and expand our relationships with strong institutional capital partners and diversify our capital resources. The REIT also continues to enhance its, the integrity and competitiveness of its business through expanded ESG initiatives. During the first quarter, the REIT established an ESG leadership team, and we continue to integrate ESG into our investment and development strategies including the pursuit of LEED certification for 4.2 million square feet of recently developed projects in California, Minnesota, Texas, New Jersey, and Arizona. Fundamentals in the U.S. industrial sector remain very strong, and with our deepening global institutional capital partnerships and a growing pipeline of well-located development projects, we're focused on leveraging the strength and experience of our platform to build long-term value for our unit holders. With that preview, I'll now turn things over to Matt to discuss the REIT's operating results and private capital activity. Thanks, Scott, and good morning, everyone. I'll start with a quick update on rent collections. Q1 rent collection rates were 99.8%, and we received over 99.9% .9 of contractual rents for April and 96.9% so far for May. These collection rates are consistent with last quarter, and overall, our collection rates have remained virtually unchanged versus pre-pandemic levels, consistently exceeding 99%. Occupancy as of quarter end was 97.6%, with a portfolio weighted average remaining lease term of 4.1 years. Including recent leasing activity, leased occupancy has increased to 99.1% as of today. And on the leasing front, 
The REIT had 67,000 square feet of new leases and 553,000 square feet of lease renewals commenced in the first quarter. Lease renewals commencing in the quarter had weighted average cash and straight line rent releasing spreads of 7.1% and 14.7% respectively. We also signed 994,000 square feet of lease renewals in the first quarter with weighted average cash and straight line rent releasing spreads of 5.3% and 11.4% respectively. Excluding tenants exercising fixed rate renewal options, the remaining 137,000 square feet of lease renewals signed in the quarter had a weighted average cash and straight line rent releasing spread of 10.9% and 20.4% respectively. Subsequent to quarter end, we signed another 412,000 square feet of new leases and 38,000 square feet of lease renewals at a weighted average cash and straight line rent releasing spread of 28.3% and 28.2% respectively. As of today, we have 596,000 square feet of remaining 2021 expirations, which accounts for about 2.2% of portfolio GLA. On March 29th, the REIT contributed 13 stabilized properties with a value of approximately $370 million into a newly established joint venture. And as Scott mentioned previously, this new joint venture represents a meaningful expansion to our private capital assets under management and facilitates capital recycling out of select markets and large single-tenant properties while maintaining our existing operational scale. And as Judd will touch on in more detail in a moment, the transaction also strengthens our balance sheet by reducing leverage and bolstering liquidity, providing additional capacity to fund our growing development pipeline. And as for the development pipeline, we have 13 projects at various stages in the development process, totaling approximately 6.9 million square feet. We're also currently in exclusive negotiations on three additional projects representing approximately 3.5 million square feet of future development. We've also recently entered into full building leases for our private capital development projects in Paris, California, Houston, Texas, Mansfield, New Jersey, and Egan, Minnesota. These new leases are comprised of over 1 million square feet of gross leasable area, leased to a mix of high quality tenants with a weighted average lease term of eight years. I'll now turn things over to Judd to provide more details on our financial results and capital recycling initiatives. Thanks, Matt, and good morning, everyone. Before I begin, let me remind everyone that all figures today, all figures discussed today, are stated in U.S. dollars. Total investment property revenue for the quarter increased 46% year over year, primarily due to acquisitions with additional contributions from increases in base rent. The REIT also earned management fee revenue of approximately $8.5 million in the quarter as we realize gross promote fees of $8 million. Same properties NOI growth was up 2.5% for the quarter, driven mainly by favorable releasing spreads and contractual rent increases, along with a 0.8% increase in same property occupancy. GNA expenses for the quarter, excluding fair value adjustments and promote expense, were approximately $3.8 million. FFO per unit was 29.8 cents up 62% compared to the same period in 2020. AFFL per unit was 25.6 cents, up 87% over the same period last year. Both FFO and AFFO per unit were mainly impacted by 2020 acquisitions, increases in base rent and fee revenue, 
and offset by a slight increase in GNA. At March 31st, our balance sheet and liquidity position remains strong, with cash on hand of $23 million and remaining availability on the credit facility of approximately $149 million. Since year-end, our debt-to-asset ratio decreased 400 basis points to 43.1%, 45.1% including our proportionate share of debt from our equity accounted for joint ventures. As a result of a $370 million stabilized joint venture, the REIT generated approximately $255 million in net proceeds, which was used to delever the balance sheet upon closing. We paid down $61 million in mortgages and $190 million on the revolving facility. The REIT has no mortgages maturing in 2021 and only one $24 million mortgage maturing in 2022. Moving into the back half of the year, the REIT will continue to focus on capital recycling to further strengthen our balance sheet and create additional flexibility to allocate capital to higher return investment opportunities. To that end, we expect to close on an additional disposition prior to the end of the second quarter with, an, with expected proceeds of approximately $23 million. With that, I'll now turn things back to Scott to wrap up. Thanks, Judd. With our growing pipeline of opportunities and the rapidly accelerating fundamentals in the U.S. industrial market, we remain optimistic about the long-term success and outlook for our business. Thanks for your time and attention this morning. We'd now be pleased to answer any questions you may have. We will now begin the question and answer session. To ask a question, you may press star, then one on your touchtone phone. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing the keys. If at any time your question has been addressed and you would like to withdraw your question, please press star, then two. At this time, we will pause momentarily to assemble our roster. The first question comes from Lauren Kalmar with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Um, just uh, firstly on the developments on the on the um, new leases you guys were able to close in the quarter, um, could you guys give a little color maybe on rental rates and sort of where they were in relation to pro forma rents? Sure. Um, I'd, I'd say generally they exceeded pro forma rents. Uh, and, you know, keep in mind on those on those four leases we signed, you know, not all those buildings are even complete yet. The only one that's really 100% complete today is the Paris, California asset. And we've had that in lease up for a while now. But although it took a little longer than we anticipated originally to lease that building, we ended up being hit by a pitch of rapidly rising rates in that market. So we did quite a bit better on rent there. Um, the, the Jordan Ranch and the Egan facilities, we also exceeded where we expected to be on a pro forma basis, but keep in mind those assets aren't going to be fully complete until Q3. And then the Mansfield asset, um, that won't even be done until Q1 of 2022, but I think it's a testament to that market that we were able to lease that before we even started vertical construction there. But in all cases, to answer your question, Lauren, we exceeded pro forma rent. Okay, that's, that's good to hear. And maybe just sticking with the theme here. Um, so with the Paris asset now leased and stabilized, do you guys expect to bring that in sort of in the next uh, couple quarters? And maybe just add on to that with the um, the other two being completed in Q3, should we expect those sort of in the the uh, towards the end of the year to be uh, vended in? Yeah. Hey, Lauren. I think we still we still, I think the first uh, I guess the first part of that conversation for us really is to have the partner or partners affirmatively decide to exit. And we're not there yet, really, on any of those projects. So I, I think that that becomes the first conversation, and then 
the second one will become, you know, whether we, you know, the REIT want to bring in an incremental investment in those properties, some of which we already have a co-investment in. So, so it's early, I think, to, to affirmatively signal when and if those will come in, but certainly it's on, on strategy for us to, to bring in incremental interest in those assets or uh, outright interest in those assets if our partners are willing and interested in exiting. And, and, and just following up, would that be something that the IMCO core JV would be interested in? That's exactly right. Yeah, the, the, the okay. really, I mean, in the, starting back from 2018, uh, the, the strategies remain relatively consistent. I think we expect to have partners in two phases of, uh, of these projects, the first phase being the development phase, and then we expect to have one or more partners sticking around for a longer-term hold. The, the core joint venture or the stabilized joint venture is really just an acceleration of that second phase of uh, JV partnerships. Okay, and then just one last quick one from me. Uh, looks like you guys have kind of taken care of most of the 2021 expiries. Any updates on the 2022 uh, expiries? Yeah, we've made headway there as well. Uh, we're, we're chipping. We've chipped away at a couple percent there. So as we look at what what remains, I would say of the 20 percent or so that remains, we're in what we'll call active documentation with about 25 percent of that. And that those are the ones that are loaded towards the front end of the year. So the things that are a little later in the year, there's the we're in preliminary discussions and conversations with with those tenants, in particular the ones for bigger spaces, but Nothing to really report there other than conversations are commencing. Okay, that's, uh, that's great to hear. I'll turn it back. Thank you. Thank you. The next question comes from Joanne Chen with BMO. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, with respect to the very strong leasing spreads uh, you know, during the quarter and subsequent, particularly subsequent to quarter end, could you maybe provide some additional color on you know, that 28%, uh, the primary driver of that and whether it's specific to a certain market or an asset class, sorry, or an asset? Yeah, yeah. so the, the primary, a couple of drivers, um, one, there were just some big spreads, some bit, some smaller spaces where we were able to push rents and the, the cash spreads were just bigger. Um, and then the, uh, the other phenomenon I think that influences that is the biggest space in that cohort of renewals was a shorter term deal. So kind of the inverse of what we talked about last quarter in terms of conceding some uh, some rent in favor of term. In this case, we were pushing rents and conceding term. So that, that that's really what's affecting that um, those numbers. And then at, with respect to the activity inside the quarter, I think we, we tried to strip women. I think we alluded to this last quarter. We've got a, a few spaces on fixed renewal options that we don't really have an opportunity to reset rents or negotiate rent. And so that, if you strip out that, that's really the, the Honeywell space that we've alluded to in prior quarters. And if you strip that out, that kind of gives you a sense of where where we were on the on the rest of those renewals where we were actually negotiating rate. And that's, those okay. are the numbers, obviously, in the, in the press release at the more of a 10 and 20. Got it. And I guess, um, yeah, uh, with respect to so I guess the rest of the remainder of the year, um, can we kind of expect um, still very positive momentum uh, with respect to overall leasing activity? Yeah, we don't have. I mean, for what's left in 2021, yeah. I mean, we're really now yeah. down to less than 2%, predominantly yeah. smaller yeah. spaces. There's, you know, we don't have anything real material there. There's two spaces of, of any real size, so in, a, in excess of 100,000 square feet. We've got 
150,000 square feet in, in Los Angeles. And I think it's fair to say we expect very strong momentum in that market. And just based on where we're out quoting rates, I think we expect to uh, achieve significant growth there. And the only other real large space is a Central Florida space, um, which is uh, a December expiration. And so we're just beginning to have discussions there. So a little, little early to report on exactly what, what the outcome will be there. But we're down to such a small denominator at this point that there's not, not much will move the dial. Got it. Um, and I guess just circling back, uh, touched upon the capital recycling. Um, sorry, I might have missed, uh, you did mention about uh, around 23 million. Is, could you talk about uh, potentially further opportunities throughout the year that you can identify within your portfolio right now? Yeah, so, so when we guided to capital recycling efforts for 2021, I, they, we, we were talking about 100 to 200 million, and we really checked that box with the core joint venture that we announced. Um, I think what you'd expect the rest of the year is, first of all, the, the, the asset that we're selling that we expect to close this quarter is basically an exit from the Detroit market. So it's our only asset in Detroit. So we'll be completely out of that market and, and don't expect to re-enter it going forward. And then uh, what we'd see the rest of the year might be some incremental pruning like that. But if, at this point, no major capital recycling beyond, I'll call it, layer-in pruning is expected. Got it. And, and I guess switching to on the acquisition side of things, uh, would it be fair to say that most of the activity will likely uh, continue to be uh, more towards uh, the development pipeline? For, for sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. as we've said, the, the, the U.S. industrial market's been pretty frothy and, and challenging for a couple of years now. And notwithstanding that, of course, we think we've been scrappy and able to source some off-market and compelling opportunities, and we'll continue to do that going forward. But for sure, the, the vast majority of our effort and capital will be directed toward our private capital platform and into the development where we can generate outsized returns. Yeah, okay. And maybe just last one for me. Uh, obviously, you know, lots of cost inflation everywhere right now. But on the development side, then, would you say that, you know, the ongoing strong demand for the assets as well as ongoing cap rate compression, you know, um, there's still a quite a healthy spread when it comes to your uh, some of your development pro projects? Yeah, I mean, what the, uh, clearly some of the headlines you've been seeing are steel is, you know, the, the, the price has doubled and beyond the price increase in steel, it's been difficult to get. The good news for us is we've locked up or bought out all the steel we need for everything that's in our uh, currently being constructed portion of our private capital pipeline and the stuff that we're working on entitlements or or in pre-construction on we've built in pretty conservative assumptions on that cost line item and then of course lumber and land and and some of the other things that are driving into that increase in construction costs um, are something everybody's contending with but I think the thing that's bailing a lot of folks out is this continued cap rate compression we're seeing in the market and and in some markets, we're seeing five or 10 basis points a month of additional cap rate compression. It's really accelerated in 2021. And then, of course, the, the rising rents that everybody's talking about as well. So, uh, you know, those, so those are mitigants to those increases in construction costs that we're seeing. Okay, no, that's helpful. Uh, that's it for me. I'll turn it back. Thanks. Thanks. The next question comes from Mike Arkidis with Desjardins. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Congrats on a strong quarter. Um, on, uh, I, I can't remember if it's Carson or Fontana, but you guys bought an asset that was in December where we're making kind of uses will come off and that will be put into redevelopment. Do you happen to have, if 
the contribution to NOI this quarter and maybe have a better idea when that comes off. Hey Mike, it's Judd. It, it's a I don't have a number off the top of my head, but it's a pretty small number. Um, it, the idea is that it'll probably come off, my guess is in um, either Q3 or Q4 when we get to the point where one, those leases expire, and then two, where we're ready to start the redevelopment. Sorry, I, you guys went dark on me. I don't know if the call, technical call I, I can hear you. Can you hear us now? I didn't hear a word Judd said. Okay. All right, Judd, say it again. again. Sorry, Judd. <laughs> oh, no, no problem. I don't mind repeating myself. Say the same thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, it, I don't have the number at the top of my head, but it's, uh, it's a pretty small number, the, um, the NOI contribution. Those leases run through some point in, I, I believe, Q3, and we will, uh, at that point, we expect to terminate them uh, when, and then in, in time to start the redevelopment part. Okay, great, thanks. Um, on the Detroit disposition, is the $23 million, is that net of debt or is the asset unencumbered? It's part of our unencumbered pool. Okay, great. And um, can you give us a rough sense of the cap rate? I mean, I guess I might be able to see it in your in DNA, but I'm not sure. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Yeah, I don't, I don't have that off the top of my head. I don't know if Matt or Scott do. Mm -hmm. No, but if you stay, yeah. But we'll loop back. I'll get somebody to text me while we're on the call. And before we hang up the call, I'll tell you what the zip code is. Okay, perfect. Um, just with respect to... Uh, the great success you guys are having on the, the private capital um, leasing in the uh, private capital platform. Does that impact at all your range? I didn't hear any comments um, on the 10 to 14 million of fee income this year, or is, it still, uh, is that still a range that we should be thinking about? You know, based on where we are right now, I think we're, we're probably comfortable that's probably going to be toward the upper end of that range. Um, but we'll, we'll probably have more. Uh, better updates next quarter after we have some idea on um, how things progress for the next sort of 90 days. Okay, great. And then uh, last one for me, just with respect to, you know, recent inflation fears and um, I guess movements in the yield curve, your your weighted average term to debt is, is fairly short, but three years, I think, on both the uh, mortgage and non-secured side. Is that something you guys are, are looking at in terms of opportunities to turn that out or... Um, just get some additional thoughts on your strategy there. It would be helpful. I think 
Sorry, I, I was reading the cap rate answer, yeah. Mike, and so sorry, you're going to have to repeat that question. But I, but I was reminded by our dispositions person that we are not going to disclose cap rate on that. We've agreed between buyer and seller to not publicly disclose that, and so I'm going to have to dodge you on that one. And if I could get you to read well, the last question, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, no, no problem, no problem. So just your your weight average term on your debt. It's about three years, and just with the um, you know inflation years and perhaps movements we've seen in the yield curve. Is there any opportunity to turn that out or is that not something you're undertaking at this point? Well, so most of our debt at this point, like I said, we don't have anything that comes due in the next uh, the next year. We've got one small mortgage that comes due the year in the uh, second half of 2022. Um, the first big term, term loan is June of 2023. That's already termed out. It, it's hedged out. Um, we will continue to look at it. We evaluate the debt strategy on a, on a very regular basis, seeing what we're seeing in the market. Uh, it's something we're paying attention to, but given the, the opportunities within our current debt portfolio, I don't know if there's, uh, there's not a lot we can do right now, uh, given the way, the way we've uh, hedged everything and sort of locked things up for the next few years. Got it. Okay. Uh, that's going to The next question comes from Himansu Gupta from Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Thank you and good morning. So just morning. on the uh, 2022 lease expiries, uh, how much of them have fixed rate renewal option? I mean, I'm just trying to see what could be the overall upside potential on the renewals in 2022. Uh, obviously, 2021 was a pretty, pretty solid year. Yeah, so there, you know, you've got, call it six and a half million feet or so. I, I think we've got probably about a million feet of that that would be on a fixed rate option structure. And, and when we're when it's this early, it is a little hard to tell because it's often the case that someone wants to move outside the, the box of what's been established for a, a fixed rate option where they want capital or, or they want a modified term, either longer or shorter. So oftentimes we'll, we'll break out of the box and not go the path of the fixed rate renewal, but I guess that maybe gives you a sense of what could potentially go down that path. And if it does, I think it, it does trend a little more towards like what you see on Honeywell, which is looks more like an annual step than a market reset to something that's higher single digits or even low teens. It becomes more of a 2 or 3% type lift on that. The other thing I'd add in, Hamachu, is that, that on Honeywell, um, that was their last fixed rate renewal option. They have one more option to renew, but it's at market. So we won't have to contend with that there going forward. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, and then just turning to the uh, development pipeline there, uh, another 3.5 million square feet uh, of development pipeline under negotiation. Uh, so just wondering how competitive is land acquisition these days and uh, any specific markets you're focusing on in terms of land acquisition? Yeah, so I'd say that the, the land acquisition market is competitive for sure. Uh, it's I, I, probably not as competitive as it is on the stabilized side because there aren't as many people that have development capabilities in their organization than, than there are people that have capital to deploy. But it's still a competitive market, and, and in that 3.5 million square foot, I'll call it, pipeline beyond what we disclosed in our deck, it's almost exclusively coastal. Exclusive Western. And, and then maybe the follow-up is, uh, you know, obviously you 
looking at coast to coast. So are you seeing a continued difference between like coastal land acquisition versus say, uh, you know, acquisition in Atlanta or national markets, like non-coastal markets? Are you seeing a big difference there as well? Well, I mean, I, I think I've said publicly before, we're at a point in the cycle and, and with people being massively underallocated toward industrial that in my career, I've never seen a tighter spread between A, B, and C quality assets. And, and it's probably the narrowest spread I've ever seen between coastal and non-coastal markets as well. And so, you know, all of the major markets are competitive, uh, but there's no question that the coastal markets are, are more competitive than the non-coastal markets. All right, okay, that's helpful. Uh, and maybe the last question on the theme of, you know, competitiveness in the industrial market. Uh, we looked at, a, uh, you know, a recent m transaction, uh, Equity Commonwealth announced acquisition of Mount. Uh, so any read-through on the pricing uh, for that portfolio versus your portfolio? Well, I, I, I don't, uh, I'm not going to comment on theirs other than to say that they've got a pretty high concentration to FedEx, much, much higher than we are. But, um, but look, I think it's a testament to the strength of the industrial market. When, when that deal started and the activist investor put up an offer that was roughly a five cap, I think most people thought that's where it would settle. And the idea that someone came in over the top of that and pushed that cap rate down meaningfully from there just shows you that that there's a there's a big demand for um, industrial and especially industrial in scale and so that that should just be a continued uh, a continuation on the thesis that that just about everything in industrial is garnering a premium to today's market absolutely clearly you know a lot of appetite for portfolio transactions and any uh, you know read through in terms of the portfolio premiums being out there uh, i mean if you aggregate a size of portfolio is it like 50 basis point, 100 basis point, any sense on the portfolio premium? I mean, there's no question that there's a portfolio premium, and the better the portfolio and the, and, and the, and the more concentrated it is, I guess, to high barrier markets, the bigger the portfolio premium for sure. And as you know, IFRS doesn't allow companies to put a portfolio premium on their valuation when they value their individual assets. But, but that exists in the market, and I think it's a – I mean, the interesting thing about real estate is that no two pieces of real estate are the same, right? You've got different tenancy and slightly different access and location and functionality. And so, you know, every portfolio is different, I'd say, but, but you're, you're in the zip code of the portfolio premiums that I think we're all seeing. Got it. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I'll, I'll turn it back. Thank you. The next question comes from Brad Sturgis with Raymond James. Please go ahead. Hi there. Good morning. Um, maybe just to follow up on Hamanchu's questions there. Uh, obviously, it could be more market-specific, but how would you compare uh, acquisition pricing on a price per foot versus replacement cost today, given you know the valuation increases you've been seeing of late to start the year? Yeah, I, I think that, that, that it's probably safe to say that if you put a market cap rate on a market rent, that in many cases and in many markets, you're going to end up over replacement cost, which is why a lot of the sophisticated U.S. players are favoring development today, because they'd rather build their way in and be in at replacement cost than pay a big premium to replacement cost. But of course, that varies based on where your in-place rents are. Interesting story on our Paris asset, I and mean, when we signed the lease there, and, uh, and within weeks after that lease was signed, we had brokers in the market telling us that that lease was already below market, and it didn't take very long to get to that point. And so you've got 
you know, you got rapidly accelerating rates in a lot of the coastal markets. You've got, as we talked about earlier, rising construction costs, and so I guess it's a it's a race to the top between as rents rise and construction costs rise. You know, they they're marching in lockstep with each other. Okay, uh, and, and maybe just to circle back on the the leasing done on the in the private capital business, just from my understanding. You know, on the promote fees, how does that revenue or the fee stream get recognized? Is that based on uh, asset sale or uh, is that like occupancy stabilization? How does how do the mechanics work there? Yeah, it'll typically be based on a combination of those two things. Actually, I mean, it, it, the the trigger is really stabilization. So once once you have occupancy, then the, then then it will begin the crystallization of those amounts. And, and then typically the actual payment of those fees is tied to some sort of a recapitalization or a sale as you as you described. Okay. Okay, that's great. Thanks, I'll turn it back. The next question comes from Pommy Burr with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thanks and uh, good morning. Um, just coming back to just the, the, the rising rents, yeah, has your approach to leasing changed at all in terms of how you factor in um, whether it's rent steps or just uh, the, the going or the renewal rate going forward? No, go ahead. Yeah, yeah hey, Pami. Um, no, it, it has changed, and it certainly has changed maybe more dramatically depending on where we are in terms of market. And I think, if, I mean, tactics being as simple in coastal markets as not even quoting a rent where we where we see growth rates you know, accelerating our expectations or even the broker's expectations, everyone I think has realized that you're better to keep the cards closer to the vest there. So, that, I mean, those, those tactics have certainly changed. And then, you know, as it relates to other markets, it, it kind of depends on what this tenant-specific story is. If there's a stickiness there. We may be willing to hold out conversations and press because we feel like we have the wind at our back in terms of where, where rates are trending. And, and in some cases, that leverage uh, pushes more to neutral where we see a bit more supply or optionality for a specific tenant in a specific market. So we're still tailoring the approach to individual market dynamics, but generally speaking, I mean, everything that we've been talking about on this call and everything you're hearing from others in terms of where, where rates are going, it certainly puts us in the driver's seat in terms of feeling like we can push rents or feeling like we've got leverage uh, to, to push individual tenancies uh, you know, and even take vacancy if we need to. Uh, if, if a tenant can't, can't get to where we think we should be, I think this, you know, the difference in strategy for us certainly in this market has been, you know, to, to be uh, willing to take vacancy if we think we can get to a better place, you know, on a net effective basis considering downtime and all the retenanting costs that come with that. Got it. So it, it sounds like, you know, where you do have the opportunity, you'll, you'll push for, I guess, more aggressive steps in, in the red so over the term and where maybe there's potential Office, maybe just uh, scale it back a bit. Yeah, just, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. And, I, and that that is really the final piece. I guess the last part of your question. We're certainly seeing steps trending higher, and that and that's been a tactic that we've used in in deals where there's some sticker shock in terms of the lift or where rents have gone to, even in the course of a negotiation, in particular in lease up on a development project, where we've been able to compromise and put in some healthier steps in favor of start a starting point that isn't. Uh, that isn't quite as high. And so you're seeing steps in these leases be three and even mid threes in some cases, as opposed to two years ago where we would have seen almost all that activity and spread uh, 
annual steps in the twos. So there, there's certainly a trend there, and I think our tactic is to push uh, on that annual step alongside with the rent in every case. Got it. And, uh, Matt, just going back to your comments on, on new supply, uh, are, are there some markets out there, you know, within the portfolio where you're maybe getting a little bit, uh, you know, where some of those pressures might be a little bit more than others? Yeah, I, and I, things I, I guess we would we generally would describe most of our markets as still relatively in balance, but there's certainly pockets of softness. I think everyone's been beating up on Houston. We're we're seeing some of that softness in Houston, and we, you know we're we've got IKEA in that market for a million square feet, and I think we're feeling confident that we're going to exceed our underwriting expectations in terms of turning over that space. So that's an, you know, a positive anecdote that maybe is a little bit divergent from what you're hearing others talk about at Houston. And then, of course, we had a spec development project that we've leased in that market as well. So it can, co it can cut the other way, um, but we're certainly seeing markets where others talk about robust fundamentals and supply and check where we may have a particular building size or a particular tenant um, that is more exposed to, to that supply or small pockets of supply. So there's still there's still some softness here or there. I think that if we see any of it, we see it in some of the larger spaces where there's just been a lot more development, particularly in tier two markets of larger buildings. So if you're rolling a larger space, you may be a little bit more exposed to some of that supply pressure. But it hasn't been anything that's created significant concern on on any of the space we're rolling you know, for next for this year or for next year. It's just something we're keeping an eye on. Okay. Got it. Um, just maybe last one for me. Just you know, the, the private capital uh, platform. Can, can you talk about maybe some of the conversations that you're having with other potential partners and the opportunities, um, you know, to continue building up some some new relationships there? Clearly, you know, this is not new, but demand has obviously been insatiable in terms of the investment appetite. So I'm just curious, you know, is um, you know what uh, I guess the growth in the platform could look like uh, over the next few years. Yeah, we've we've had a we've 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 definitely had a number of inbounds from from uh, partners or future partners looking to to deploy into U.S. industrial and in particular into development. We've tried to keep things relatively simple, and we've probably made this comment in the past. I think our our desire is to spend the maximum amount of time and attention on our business and a minimal amount of time on capital raising. So the the idea of diversifying our partner base makes a lot of sense to us. But I think the goal is really a simple one, which is we want to make sure we have a source of capital to fund everything we want to do. So if, if there's a, an investment opportunity, we want to make sure our capital sources are diversified enough to match fund any any of the opportunities we see in our pipeline. But I but we don't necessarily want to overcomplicate the platform with too many partners that require complicated. Uh, conflict management scenarios and, and complicated disclosures and the like, and th that we morph into more of a fund manager. I don't. That that's not our plan, but I think you will see over time. I suspect us add a partner or two as the pipeline grows and as the opportunity set grows, just to diversify and make sure we've got enough capital to keep up with the the opportunity set that the pipeline presents. But it, but I don't expect it to be a dramatic change. It will be you know an incremental add of a partner here or there, but. To get to the root of your question, I, I think all of that does mean we do intend to scale the business, and I think we see significant growth. And I, if you look back at what we've been able to accomplish over last year with, with the addition of a new partner, even really mid-year, there's been a dramatic impact on the pipeline and our ability to capitalize deals and lean in on some larger opportunities. 
where the you know the, the capital allocation for a larger land position or a bigger deal may be challenging for a single investor, but even with two investors and then certainly three, you've just got a, a potentially a larger appetite for some larger transactions, bigger land assemblages, things like that. So we're we're mindful of that, and I think we're we're trying to grow the partner base in lockstep with the opportunity set. Got it. Uh, sorry, I, I lied. Uh, one more. Um, just um, on that point, are, are you seeing, you know, you've had good success with Canadian partners. I'm just curious, is is that where a lot of the, the inbounds are coming from? It's a mix. I, I think there's, I don't think it, I, it's not unique to Canada or the U.S. Um, in terms of the investor appetite for exposure to U.S. industrial and in particular higher return industrial development, there's a, a healthy wall of demand that's coming from, you know, we're seeing European interest, Australian interest, Asia. I mean, it's, it's not unique to North America. I mean, certainly we have capital relationships in our home market and in, uh, in, in terms of the Canadian markets, but we're seeing inbounds and having discussions with groups that are much more diverse from a geographic standpoint. Thanks very much. I'll turn it back. Thank you. As a reminder, if you have a question, please press star then 1 to be joined into the queue. The next question comes from Matt Kornack with National Bank. Please go ahead. Hi, guys. Um, just with regards to the supply and, and underwriting assets, uh, would you say that there is a spread being incorporated into the pricing in those markets where there there is potentially more supply? And then also on supply, I mean, I know there are issues with infrastructure, employment, and a whole number of things. Like, are are the nodes that you're in in these cities where supply is being added? Like, can can it supply being can supply be added to those specific areas, or is it being added more on the periphery at this point? If I was going to generalize, I'd say that the the, the tighter the market and the more barriers to entry in terms of entitlements and scarcity of land the tighter the spread typically is on you know, over a stabilized cap rate, for example. And so if we were doing something, well, I, I, as we do things in Southern California and New Jersey and markets like that, we don't expect the same spread that we do on a market that is less land constrained and, and there's a lot less barriers to entry. Uh, but uh, there, there's a lot less risk in some of those markets as well because, of the, to your question, the demand drivers are so strong. I mean, you know, we've got – we got markets like you know LA County where the vacancy rate is one percent, and so the lease up lift on, on stabilize once you build an asset and stabilize it is just not as great as it could be in some of those other markets, and so it's all about risk and return. Uh, but but across the globe, as you've seen, I mean we've had we had a record year of absorption last year in the in the fourth quarter. There was 116 million feet of absorption, and then in Q1 we had. 100 million feet. So those are two of the best quarters in, in industrial history back to back in terms of absorption. And so although there is, you know, 300 plus million square feet of new supply slated for the coming year, the absorption's really been strong. And so it, it, the market continues to perform well, which is why we're successful in leasing a lot of our buildings that we're building on a speculative basis before the vertical construction even starts. Sure, no, that, that makes sense. Um, and then, Judd, uh, I, I feel like I ask this uh, every quarter, but I'll, I'll probably continue to because it's important for our modeling. But uh, if I had to run sort of uh, G&A and uh, other income excluding any 
promotes, uh, what would be a good run rate for each of those? And then also with regards to free rent and straight line rent, if you could provide some color on a run rate there as well. Sure. So G&A, I think we're still pretty comfortable with what we've said previously. We think, you know, while there's a little bit of lumpiness in the first and fourth quarter where they're a little higher and two, two and two, three a little lower, it's, you know, three and a half per quarter is probably a decent number excluding the promote expense and the fair value adjustments that, that occur through our deferred comp plans. Um, as it relates to sort of free rent, uh, I think we're still, what we're seeing in our portfolio right now is, you know, it's it maybe as low as uh, $100,000, $150,000 in a quarter, and it may trend up to maybe 500000 from what we're seeing right now, but in a $300,000 number, three to four is probably a good number um, right now for what we're seeing in our portfolio that we've already sort of locked up and what we think the near term is on that regard. Um, we haven't, like, on the fee piece, uh, we haven't given a lot of additional guidance on that besides the sort of what the total looks like for the year. I think you can look at where we were this quarter, and um, there were there were some construction management fees, but not a lot. The core JV closed toward the end of the, the quarter, and so... I mean, I think there will be some movement in the next couple of quarters there. It's, you know, not a um, – we continue to think that we'll be toward that, like I said, by the top end of our overall range. And so you can kind of interpolate from that if we were at $8 million, $8.5 million for the first quarter. That means we've got somewhere probably, you know, at least at least a couple million over the next uh, three quarters and could be as much as five to six. Okay. No. And uh, you. So your comment there about the the JV. So the three hundred seventy eight thousand of asset management fees in Q one would include a very small portion of what you'd potentially get on that from a JV standpoint. And would would that fall into asset management fees in terms of the accounting? Yes, it will. Yeah. Yeah. We had I think two days or three days okay. uh, for the quarter. So yeah, we'll have a full quarter in uh, in Q two. Okay, perfect. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. This concludes our question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Scott Fredrickson for any closing remarks. Thanks, Betsy. And thanks again for everyone for tuning in and listening. We appreciate your interest in WPT Industrial REIT. And if you have any questions, feel free to call any of us at any time. Thanks again. The conference is now concluded. Thank you for attending today's presentation. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.